I, <clears throat> I invite you to turn with me to First uh, John chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 to 6 this morning and 7 to 14, if we're all spared, in the evening. So um, there's plenty in there. Uh, pray that even at this late moment, um, if I haven't been able to simplify things enough, that God will give me another insight and help you to hear what he wants to say to us. We live in the age of the rebel. Obedience is so out of date and unfashionable. Look at the movies. Heroines and heroes are almost always people who bravely strive against authority, disobeying parents, disobeying school, disobeying superior officers in the forces, and they follow their inner call, and of course it always turns out well. They always end up right. Dead poet society, struggling against conformity, going the way of freedom through the poets. Um, Mulan uh, goes to war disguised uh, as a male fighter in place of her father, but against her father's wishes, and ends up fighting better than all the men. Or the little mermaid, who finds her true love out of the ocean despite the fears of Neptune, her rather inadequate father. And if it were ever possible to make a film of Milton's Paradise Lost, Satan would definitely be the hero. Why is obedience so unattractive? Why is being like James Dean, the rebel without a cause, so alluring to modern day? Well, it's always been the story. It just so happens that when the gospel recedes from a society, obedience recedes from a society. Um, how many of you can sing in, once in Royal David City the line, Christian children all must be mild, obedient, good as he, without smiling? Hmm? Many of us do, because it seems so out of our culture at this time. In the Bible, obedience is praised and valued as a high virtue. Honor your father and mother. The first commandment with a promise that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Or Paul writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy, he is a man under orders who commands Timothy to command his people to live a life of faith and obedience. Paul's gospel, the letter to the Romans, he sums up his gospel ministry in this, to bring about in the Gentiles the obedience of faith. We read in Hebrews chapter 5 about Jesus. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So we come to a new movement in the letter of John. And it, uh, some people have said, think about a symphony. You've got the opening um, moment of, of the symphony, and then you've got different movements. And John seems to do that. He doesn't go logically or linearly. He picks up themes, restates them, goes back, goes round them. Um, and that's what he's doing again in uh, 
this passage, verses 1 to 6. I think he punctuates his thought with addresses. So um, we proclaim or we write this to you. He's speaking in the first bit, all of chapter 1, as a representative of the apostolic witness. And now he comes, I write to you, my dear children, so my beloved children. And I think that signifies a change in movement. And you'll see the same. That's why I've split it up from verses 7 to 14 as well. And I'll speak more about the split of, that, of those verses 12 to 14 tonight if, if we're here. Um, the big message is that God is light. And that means God is all truth and God is all goodness. And he's been looking at that in chapter 1. But it also means knowledge. Knowledge, we're still in the realm of truth and lies, but light also speaks of knowledge. How do we know we have come to know him? Well, he says it's through obedience, through obedience. Um, Obedience will show that you know. It's the start of a rap, isn't it? Not very good. Obedience will show that you know if you truly have the love which comes from above in your heart, you will. Don't smile at me. I'm hopeless. Okay. So are you enlightened, John is saying? Do you really know him? God is light. Now I'm going to talk to you about obedience, he says. Look at three, verse 3, 4, and 5. We know we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did, the life of obedience. So there's obedience. Now, now he's still in the realm of truth and lies. Notice verse 4 and and verse 5. He says, if anyone obeys his word, sorry, verse 4, the man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. He's been talking about lies and truth already, but he's picking it back up again. But if anyone obeys his word, verse 5, God's love is truly perfected in him or made complete in him. So in verse 5, he's talking about obedience, but in in verse 5, John equates obedience to Jesus Christ, the righteous one, with love. We know we have come to know him, that is the atoning sacrifice, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, if we obey his commands. And verse uh, verse 5, rather, if anyone obeys his word, God's love, the Father's love, is truly made complete in that obedient one. Obedience and love. And once again in that verse, verse 5, John does what he does so often in his letter. He says two things at the same time. If you read the commentators, they're almost equally divided between whether uh, verse 5 is about God's love, the love that God has, or is about our love, the love that we have for God. Because you could read it both ways. But John, if you look in his letter, he means it both ways. And so, um, you, could, you could say, in the one sentence, he's saying the same truth 
it, the same thing in different ways. So God's love, which is directed towards our salvation and our rescue and our being reconciled to him and come into fellowship with him, God's love, you see the perfection of his love when we are brought from rebellion to obedience. When we obey Jesus, the word, God's love then is perfected in us and completed in us. And of course, it will happen perfectly when the darkness recedes completely and the light is there completely. And we are with God and with Christ forever. His love then will truly be made complete. And of course, remember, perfect love can grow. But then the other side of things, our love for God is shown as true love for God or perfect love for God in our obedience to God. So he's seeing two things in verse 5. Obedience is the test of truly knowing Jesus, who is our advocate, the one who speaks in our defense. Look at verses 1 to 3 again. My dear children, I write this to you that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him, the righteous one, if we obey his commands. That's the test of whether you have salvation, whether you know him, if you obey his commands. And then he, he rounds off this thought in verse 6 with, whoever claims to live in him must walk as our Savior Jesus did. Look a bit more closely at, at uh, this word live. If you've got an ESV, it will, it will show you abide. So the idea is where you um, persistently live, as it were, where you walk in the light. Um, it's another way of putting it. Where you have fellowship. Um, Jesus used the same word in uh, John 15, didn't he? Abide in me. Or John 14, abide in me. Um, so uh, it, it's to live in him is to walk in the light. It is to have fellowship with him. But notice John shortens his, his um, title just to Jesus. He does that one other place here in this letter, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from every sin. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Not Jesus Christ, not Christ Jesus, but Jesus. And he's drawing attention to the fact that this is his saving work, as in it, Jesus means savior. Um, and he says, look at this, and the blood that brings atonement purifies us from all sin. It is God's blood. Do you claim to know Jesus the Savior? Do you claim to know him as the one who atones for your sins? Then you must walk as the Savior walked. And so here's a question to you this morning, online and here. Have you received the forgiveness of your sins? Is Jesus speaking to the Father in your defense. Do you truly know him? Do you love him? You must show this knowledge by your obedience. Be like Jesus. Walk in obedience. Be like Jesus. Love God in all things. 
Easy to sing, I love you, God. Easy to say, I love God. Who can check whether you've been sincere? Love has to come from an emotional, an emotional center in us, or it's not true love, it's just words. But how can you tell that that is true love when somebody, oh, I love Jesus. You can't look into anybody's heart. You can't say, oh, you're a liar. All we can look at is the outward signs. And obedience is the outward sign of an inward love. Obedience is the visible sign of an invisible love. Do you love God? You will show it. We can see it in your obedience, in your loving obedience to the Father. I can't look for your love inside. It has to be there. It has to be real. It has to be affectionate. But I can see your obedience. So love is not just obedience without affection. And love is not affection without obedience. It's both. Obedience will show that you love, that you, that you love. When you see the man obey, you only can say, I see love. Okay, it's even worse. To walk as Jesus did, he ends this section and holds up, as he's been doing all through this letter, Jesus as our example, but also Jesus as the center of our worship. He holds him up for admiration and example. Look at Jesus, he says. Look at how he lived in obedience and love to the Father. Don't you just want to love him more? Don't you want to joyfully serve him and obey him? Don't want to bow down before him and praise him when you see the way he walked? When you see what he's doing for you now? Jesus walked in obedience. And God shows us the love that he has for us when he shows us Jesus' obedience. Theologians talk about two kinds of obedience of, of Jesus. They talk about the active obedience, and they talk about the passive obedience of Jesus. The active obedience is Jesus obeys every command of God perfectly, whereas we cannot. He lives the righteous life that we find impossible to live, and so is our great um, intercessor between God and us. He's the one that, that, that shows God the, his perfect obedience. That's his active obedience. But his passive obedience is his suffering obedience. He went to the cross to suffer. And that's what John's looking at in, in this letter and drawing our attention to, particularly in verse 2. He is the atoning sacrifice, the one who turns aside God's wrath, taking away our sins, and not only ours, but the sins of the whole world, the propitiation John uses that twice in this letter. And I want to spend the remaining time thinking about the passive obedience of Jesus. Um, what this propitiation means. What does it mean to turn aside the wrath of God? What does it mean that God himself makes peace in himself regarding our sins through the intercession of Jesus? The wrath of God. It's a very, very difficult doctrine, isn't it? It's despised by some parts of the church. The wrath of God, oh, that's ghastly teaching. It's barbaric. It's, somebody said, it's cosmic child abuse. Why are you teaching that terrible doctrine, the wrath of God? 
Oh, we can't have penal substitutionary atonement. Not punishing Jesus. He's not taking our place. It's just an example of love for us. The cross is not God punishing our sins so that we can be forgiven. That's barbaric. So the people in the church say. But then people outside the church who have no um, vocabulary from the church, who just come in from the outside, they'll say, I don't get it. I, I really don't. Why can't God just forgive? What's with this blood of sacrifice? I don't get that at all. Now, to the outsider, I want to say what Tim Keller says. It's helpful. He says, nobody just forgives. No human being just forgives without cost. He says, think of a time when you have really, really been hurt. Was it easy just to say, oh, I forgive you? Of course it wasn't. You had in your heart that burning desire to make them pay for what they did to you or someone you love. Forgiveness is never easy. Either the guilty one has to pay the cost or you pay the cost by paying and bearing the hurt. 1987. Gordon Wilson and his daughter Mary were at a Remembrance Day parade in Enniskillen, which was bombed by the IRA. And as they lay in the rubble together and the life was leaking out of Mary, he held her hand and she said, I love you, Daddy. And he watched her so she could say no more. And her last breath came. I want the IRA to burn in hell. That's making them pay. But a couple of days later he said, I bear them no ill will. Gordon said that. I bear them no grudge because he loved Jesus and he knew that he was forgiven in Jesus. Nobody just forgives. Much more God. And to both of you, I want you to try and understand what John means by the need for sacrifice. You don't understand the depths of the knowledge of God, what that means, nor the heights of the offense of sin what that means. And once you get both of those, you will start to get the breadth and length of his love for sinners. The depth of the knowledge of God. How deep is his knowledge? God is light. I said earlier, last week, that that signifies truth and goodness in the first part of his letter. But it also signifies knowledge. We talk about the light bulb going off Or we talk in the Bible of the light of knowledge. Or we talk about enlightened understanding. God knows everything. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Nothing can hide from the light. I don't know if children, as a a child, you've ever tried to hide in the dark. Very quiet. And you're playing hide and seek. 
And of course, somebody comes in and switches the light on and spoils it. You can hide in the dark, but once the light comes in, it's all, all shown. God knows everything. God knows when you're being mean at school. He knows when you're envious and jealous of somebody else. He knows the things that you say and do that you're ashamed of. You cannot hide from light because the light goes on and there is no shadow or darkness to hide in. But God knows you. And he loves you and he knows your struggles. And he knows what it's like to be in a school where few people love Jesus. And he knows when you're upset. And he loves you and helps you. But the problem God has is because he has light, how can he not see sin? Hmm? He remembers everything from all time and eternity. How can he forget our sin? How can he blot out our transgressions so they no longer appear in the light? How can he cleanse us from our iniquity so that he no longer sees how filthy we are in our sin? It's through Jesus the advocate. We stand before an all-seeing God of light, the judge, who is outraged at the crime of rebellion, outraged at the dishonor to his glory, that we disobey him and take everything he gives us for granted, that we, that we use all his blessings and never say thanks. He is outraged. He sees that sin. He cannot not see it or not know it. And Jesus steps up and he puts us behind him. There is something now he cannot see. Our sin is blotted out. The light cannot see our darkness because the sacrifice of Jesus has brought us into his light. Light and water flow everywhere they are not impeded. And likewise, the knowledge of God flows everywhere it is not impeded. The only place it is impeded or stopped is on the cross through the sacrifice of Jesus. So you need to understand the depth of the knowledge of God before you understand the need for an atoning sacrifice or propitiation. But then you also need to see the height and the weight of the offensiveness of sin it's the offense of sin to God that leads to his everlasting anger. There will never be a moment in time or eternity that he will not be angry at sin and unrighteousness. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. He hates what is evil and loves what is good. And so if you sin, you need someone to speak to the Father in your defense. It's the anger of a father at sin. It's not the unpredictable anger of an alcoholic. And if you've known that or known somebody like that, you'll know what I mean when I say that. It's not that kind of anger. It's, it's impossible for God not to be angry at sin and still be God. For God will always have his wrath against unrighteousness as long as God is light and as long as there's no darkness in him at all. It's not the anger of a lawgiver against the breakers of the law. 
It's the anger of a father whose son has been defamed and despised and rejected. It's a personal and relational anger. He'll always be angry at people that despise his son, Jesus. It will go on for eternity. I want to try and illustrate this with an example from life, from our family. Um, I'm, I have two daughters, so I'm, this is anonymous to uh, preserve the guilty. Well, not quite. One of our daughters at primary school, a loving daughter, loved her friends, and she wanted to invite a lot of them around for her party. And it was a themed party. She'd thought of it. It was butterfly party. So they had butterfly games, butterfly food, um, you know, all that kind of thing. And she, she was really into it. And little girls hyper. I mean, goodness me, if, you, if you've ever been to a little girl's party, um, you know the meaning of uh, I need to lie in a darkened place with a cold cloth. Anyway, little girls, um, little girls, I overheard some of them teasing Julie butterfly party and I saw the look in her eyes she'd poured out her heart for these friends and I was blazing I was furious absolutely furious at how my daughter had been despised how her love had been made fun of And that's just a small picture to us of how the father is mad and incandescent at those who despise his son, Jesus. Critics will say, oh, that doctrine, father is mad, but Jesus is loving, so Jesus dies to make him forgive. That's horrible. We don't say that. That's not what the doctrine is about. You know, it's not just the father who is angry at unrighteousness. In Revelation 6, 16, we see the unveiling of all things and the lamb comes before creation and they screech and howl at the mountains to hide them from the wrath of the lamb, the lamb that was sacrificed, the the lamb that is angry against those who defame the father and is especially angry against those who resist the work of the blessed Holy Spirit. God has a problem with sin. His anger burns eternally against those who despise his love. And so the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit together in love find a way for forgiveness. It's through sacrifice, an innocent sacrifice. He still remains righteous, totally righteous, Because the righteous one dies in our place. He forgives the guilty and still stays fair because he bears the pain of that in his love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I have died. My life is hid with Christ in God. The life I now live I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, personal giving. He is our advocate. He represents us. He represents 
everybody throughout the world, no matter what nation you are. It's not just the Jewish nation, the Jewish part of the world. It's not just the Palestinian or the Holy Land part of the world. It's the Roman part of the world. It's, it's the Scottish part of the world. It's even the English part of the world. Let's not get racist here. Okay. It, it's every part. There's no nation, no part of the world that does not have the offer of salvation from Jesus. And he substitutes individually. He stands in the place of our judgment. So that's the depth of the knowledge of God and the height of the offense of sin. And in Jesus' sacrifice, we see the length and breadth of his love. The anger of God is a reflection of his love. It is outraged love. So I would say to the critics, the wrath of God is satisfied with the sacrifice of the righteous one. And at the same time, the love of God is satisfied with his solution to his problem and ours. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God loves and God hates unrighteousness. Loves us and hates unrighteousness. And God finds the problem, the solution to the problem that only God can make. What manner of love is this? That the Son should give himself in love for us. That the Father should receive him in his sacrifice, in love for us. What a length of love. It goes from creation through redemption and will end in glorification. God's love will surely be made complete when Jesus returns. What manner of love is this? I want to end by reading together with you in Isaiah, which speaks of the suffering and glory of God's obedient servant, Jesus. Isaiah 52, 13 and 53 to 53, 12. Behold, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. And just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form, marred even beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations. And kings will shut their mouths because of him, for what they were not told they will see, and what they have not heard, then they will understand who has believed our message. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace 
was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Speak on our behalf, Lord Jesus. We lay before you all the sin that we are aware of and ask for forgiveness in your name. Plead not our, before the Father not our, our, our tearful sorry, but your sacrifice for us. We can never, with our tears, wash away our sin, but only through your tears on our behalf the water and the blood. Help everyone here and everyone who's listening to start again from this moment forward, or if it's for the first time, to start today to walk in the light as you are in the light. We ask for the glory of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.